In a world full of smart devices, isn't it about time your printer got smart too? Now printing is smart with HP+. And the HP Smart App is how it all happens. You can print from your phone with just a tap, no matter where you are, even from your garage slash home office slash yoga studio. Huh. That is smart. HP+. Learn more about smart printing at hp.com slash smart. In a world full of smart devices, shouldn't your printer be smart too? It is with HP+. These printers know when they're running low, so you always get the ink you need delivered right when you need it. Plus, you save up to 50% on ink, so you can print whatever you want, as much as you want, anytime you want. Huh, that is pretty smart. Get six months free of instant ink when you choose HP+. Conditions apply. Visit hp.com smart for details. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. Jeffrey Tubin is such an institution, one imagines him emerging fully dressed from the womb and walking straight into a TV studio. But before CNN and The New Yorker, before the books, he was a government lawyer, and before that a superstar at Harvard, and before that the young son of Marlene Sanders, the first major female star in TV news. Tubin executive produced the brilliant CNN miniseries based on his Patty Hearst book. But first, I want to ask him about a theme that runs through his work, namely, that he seems to like pissing people off. Fox Studios was going to make a Patty Hearst movie with Tubin until Hearst called the book a hit job. Supreme Court justices felt betrayed by the clerks he coaxed into interviews for his expose, The Nine. And when he wrote a book about his first job prosecuting Oliver North, his mentor, Iran-Contra Independent Counsel Lawrence Walsh, threatened to refer Tubin to be prosecuted himself if he released the book, in which Walsh claimed he disclosed strategies and secrets of the ongoing investigation. You know, there are people who are friends of mine who've said, you were a punk kid, 29 years old, why the hell did you have to write a book right away? And, and you know, I, I can certainly understand that criticism. That's a... That's a sort of matter of taste rather of legality. But I think in terms of like legally, right, I certainly had illegal. every right to do. In fact, I had to go to court to get a judgment that it was legal for me to do it, which I did. But, you know, people who thought it was distasteful, I can certainly understand that. Uh, the Nine, another book you wrote about the court. Uh, what prompted you to write that book? I decided to write a novel. And it was like a legal thriller, and it was about a TV anchor who gets killed on the air, and it was sort of like combining my two worlds, the legal world and the TV world. And I wrote three chapters, and my agent said, you know, there's a famous editor, Phyllis Grant, who wants to, who thinks it's a great idea, wants to read your novels. Send her the chapters. So I sent her the chapters, and Phyllis invited me to her house, gave me a Diet Coke, and said, Jeff, your novel is terrible. Your novel is like it's never going to be good. You should drop it. And instead, you should write a book about the Supreme Court because you've written profiles of justices. There hadn't been a real behind-the-scenes book about the Supreme Court since Bob Woodward and Scott Armstrong's The Brethren in the 70s. I mean, the, the subject was just waiting to be exploited. And it's still my most successful book, still taught in all sorts of schools. The Nine. The Nine. And it was a great idea, which was not my idea. Do you think Ginsburg's going to be able to hang in there till 2020? Um, Let's hope so. You know, I just saw her the other day. I mean, she is so stooped over. Uh, I, You know, 
Ruth Ginsburg is about five foot tall, right. 80 pounds, and tough as any right. NFL linebacker. Right. And she's going to fight and claw. She's certainly got all her marbles. She's doing her job as well as she can. She's going to try to hang in there. But we'll see. Yeah. You know, she's 84. 84 is not the new anything. 84 is 84. I work with people for the American way. Norman Lear's organization, sure. a lot of uh, uh, judicial watching going on there. And just stressing to people over and over and over again that the court matters most in a way. And, and Republicans have recognized that more than Democrats. Right. And, and, you know, the fact that the majority leader was able to stop uh, Barack Obama from filling that seat with Merrick Garland and the fact that that was simply taken for granted and the Democrats sort of put up with it was indicative of the fact that the Republicans cared so much. You grew up in a household of two very accomplished, smart people. Uh, you're an only child. I, I, I am. Well, I, you know, in the typical American way, uh, I have a complicated family. I have a much older half-sister, but I was raised as an only child. Yeah. And she grew up where? Uh, Philadelphia. How much older than you were she? 13 years. Your childhood in New York? Uh, very much so. So she was, yeah, she, yeah. she wasn't around. So growing up in your household, so obviously your father's very accomplished, your mother's very accomplished. Right. Your mother, Marlene Sanders, who was a big pioneer in broadcast news. Were you kind of like a latchkey kid? I felt like I had a, a great degree of independence. I remember visiting my friends in the suburbs thinking, oh, my God, this is horrible, waiting around for your mom <laughs> to drive you around somewhere. I mean, you know, I think I started walking to school when I was like seven or eight earlier than kids do it now. We're going to have guys on like a security detail to take my kids to school who are like ex-Bloomberg <laughs> security people, like cops with guns driving my kids to school. That's because I'm terrified. It's because you have so many enemies, Alec. Oh, it's a no, different situation. No, 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 no. But the, the, um, uh, who would you say, would you say it was equivalent uh, which one of them is responsible for your great academic success? You did very well in school, in I, law school. I, and... I did, but one of the lessons I learned, and, and again, one of the things I don't think you learn until you have kids of your own is sort of what your parents were like. And the way my parents acted equally as supervisors, as educators, as people who love me, I mean, I really felt like my parents were equals in ways that I didn't realize at the time were so extraordinary. You know, my mother used to tell a funny story that uh, when I was in first grade, for whatever reason, someday I went home uh, with another kid at lunch. And I came home and I was talking about my day. I said, Mom, you're not going to believe this. His mother was home in the middle of the day. Why wasn't she at work? And that, to me, was like was was a revelation. Foreign, be, because you know I had I had a mother who worked. Now, also, you know, they were hardly wealthy, but they had enough money to have full time help. So we were cushioned in that respect. But you know, my dad was a, an extraordinary intellect. I mean, he was largely self taught. Where was he from? He was from Philadelphia, and he really grew up in the classical music business. Wound up running the Symphony of the Year, which was Stokowski's last orchestra, which failed under my father's leadership. It was the days before government subsidies of the arts, and, and it was a it was a heart wrenching experience. Fortunately, before I was you know conscious, and and he then went on to a career in public television where he's really one of the founding fathers, but. 
his love of music was really the great passion of his life. And the one disappointment I think that I was to my parents is that I have utterly no oh, talent in music playing. and not even that much interest in it. Really? Which is really— No, yeah. no, no piano for you to well, violin. Well, I did. I took—I did take piano lessons, and I was perhaps the worst piano student in American history. I used to have a kitchen timer that, like, I had to practice 15 minutes a night. My most vivid memory of playing the piano was pushing the timer forward yeah. so it would end faster. Sure. I just was—I just hated it. And, uh, and they, you have they, no musical tastes. You know, I mean, I, I, I like the music of my youth, and, you know, I still love Elvis Costello, and, and but, but classical music— I don't really know much about, and my dad could identify any piece immediately, opera, anything, and that, um, for some reason, that was the one sort of intellectual piece of DNA that completely skipped me. Now, to jump to the Patty Hearst Project, uh, which is based on your book, Eris, Correct. Was, was this a pitch from you? Did you say to CNN, let's make my book into a documentary series, I, or it, they, someone there said it to you? Um, it was sort of their idea. How involved were you? I mean, did they show you cuts and they show you Yeah, they or? showed me cuts, but the most important involvement was early on when I shared with them all my notes, the still photographs that I had, the links to video that I had. Um, most importantly, really, the phone numbers of the people whom, whom I interviewed so they could contact them directly. Have you, you interviewed Bill Harris? Oh, Emily absolutely. Harris? Yeah, okay, yeah. now let's talk Not about Not Emily, Bill. No, just no, no, Bill. No, 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 yeah, just that's, that's, a, that's, a whole, that's a story the in and of chasm itself. There. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. We're, we're going to talk about that. Yeah. But the first thing I say to myself is that Bill Harris is as joyful and unrepentant as can possibly be about what he did. Is that a mistake? Uh, that is um, that that is not a, not, not a mistake at all. Right. And, and and was he repentant in other ways that were left out, or what you see is no, what he really what is? You saw, what you saw is what you get. I mean, I spent a tremendous of time amount of time with Bill Harris. Um, I um, the, the and I admit to tremendous ambivalence about Bill. Why? Uh, because. He did some really horrible things. He kidnapped Patty Hearst, which is an unspeakably wrong act. He was a, um, you know, he he tried to set off bombs. Fortunately, he was incompetent, and he never managed to hurt anybody with his bombs. The police car. He helped rob banks. I mean, this I have absolutely no tolerance for, no respect for, no indulgence for. But there is, he did it for perversely decent reasons. He was never in it to make money. He was never in it for um, any sort of personal gain. This was a twisted kind of altruism that was behind the whole SLA, that they were not— For DeFreeze as well, you think? DeFreeze as well. They they were twisted and wrong. But, you know, in my line of work, I've dealt with a lot of criminals. I've been thinking about O.J. Simpson lately with this horrible interview. I mean, that is a true sociopath— Bill Harris is not a sociopath. He is a deeply, deeply misguided person. But there is something about him that is not entirely evil. And the reason why I guess I had perhaps more tolerance for Bill than I should is that I got into the 70s as a subject. And, And, you know, I was alive in the 70s, but I was a kid. And the degree to which the country was really falling apart in the 70s was something I did not remember or recognize. I mean, the, the, the statistic that, that haunts me, because it's just so amazing, in the early and mid-1970s, there were 2,000 political bombings a year in the United States. Consider what it's like now when we have one political bombing. 
And, and the fact that the country was convulsed in this way, it wasn't just Bill and Emily Harris and the SLA setting off bombs. It was the weather underground. And you had Watergate and you had the energy crisis. And assassination. And then you had the Zodiac killer in San Francisco, which I had never even heard of, where these African-Americans were just killing random white people on the street. And then you have Jim Jones, you know, the People's Temple where 900 people committed suicide. I mean, it just the, the, those convulsions. Bill and Emily Harris look less aberrational when you see what was going on in the country at the time. You know, you can't help but come out of this thing with a real concern about what a fraud Patty Hearst was. I mean, one of the most harrowing moments is, and I think you're narrating at the point, when they say she's in the room and the FBI guys come in to take her out of that room. And rather than rushing into their arms and saying, thank God you're here— they cuff her, and she's doing the salute. And and when 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 they come in the door, right, she's heading to the bedroom where the guns are. Right, and and, and you know the, the reason why I think the Patty Hearst case still compels people so much is so interesting to people is because it's a mystery about what goes on in a person's head. And the arguments about whether Patty Hearst was simply coerced to do all that she did or that she actually joined the SLA is a rich, complicated subject, and I don't pretend that it's an easy uh, question to answer. She claims that she was she was coerced by them. When she makes that claim as a defense, I'm sure she opens herself up in uh, California law to have uh, you know detailed forensic psychiatric examinations, correct? Well, well, in fact, her trial was very much the battle of experts. There were six psychiatrists who examined her, three from the prosecution, three from the defense. Were you able to see those reports? Oh, sure. And 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 they all testified. And and frankly, it was not a great moment for the psychiatric profession. It was a lot of gobbledygook uh, that sort of canceled each other out. But what really moved the jury was her behavior during the year and a half she was on the road on the run with the SLA and and you know i never consistent min- behavior i never minimize you know the terror of her kidnapping and the fact that she had sex in a closet which you know the SLA said was consensual but i don't believe people who are in, you know who who are you know in, kidnapped in a closet are capable of consent in the way that we understand it today but when you look at her behavior over that year and a half Three bank robberies, including one where a woman was killed, as you mentioned, Myrna Opsal, where she shot up a street in Los Angeles in Mel Sporting Goods, which to me is the defining event of her period as a kidnapper, where she tried to set off bombs under police cars in San Francisco when when she was by herself for long periods of time uh, where she could have walked away, made no attempt to escape. When you add all that up, uh, I think, you know, the, the the only verdict I could come to is that she did actually uh, go over. Essay. She did go over. What was in her past? What was in her youth? Did she hate? You know, not the really. The father and the mother? You know, the, the, the interesting thing about Patty's youth, first of all, was how young she was. She was only 19, 19. when she was kidnapped. Uh, but— you know, even though she came from a very wealthy family, it was very typical of of the era. You know, she pissed off her mother. Her mother was a, a Catholic uh, southerner. Very, southerner, you know, very concerned about appearances and propriety. And, and you know, Patty liked boys, and she moved in with her boyfriend, which horrified her mother. 
But, I mean, these were the kind of conflicts that were utterly routine. Mm -hmm. You know, she was not a particularly political person. She, you know, she had worked as a clerk under, you know, without people knowing where she was for a few months. She got a sense of a little bit of how the other half lived. But this was not a budding political activist. This was not a huge rebel. You know, there were signs that she was somewhat more rebellious than most kids. You know, she she, uh, she, she, she was very tough on the nuns and she kept getting thrown out of Catholic schools. But, I mean, this is very minor stuff uh, by the standards of the, of the era. So the, the idea that she was some sort of radical and embryo there really just wasn't much proof of that. Is it assumed that DeFries and his organization, everything they did, they were super effective in this brainwashing coercion thing? I mean, thing? you know, to know the SLA is to know they weren't super effective at anything. <laughs> I mean, they were not competent. They didn't have a plan to brainwash her. You know, quite a, it, 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 no one thought she was actually going to join up with them. They basically wanted to get rid of her uh, after a, a certain period of time. But but I think the best way to describe her her behavior is that you know she sort of adapted to her surroundings and and, and you know she she had a thing for authority figures. When you think about you know her boyfriends and lovers over this period, uh, Steve Weed, her fiance, had been a math teacher in her high school, an authority figure. Steve, um, uh, the the, 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 well, that's 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 that becomes her husband, um, and he's not just a cop; he's her bodyguard. Um, and the the two boyfriends she had uh, while she was with the SLA, the first one was Willie Wolf, was sort of her bodyguard within the SLA. And then later in in her period, where she acknowledges she has a consensual relationship with Steve Solia, another who was sort of a protector within uh, what became the later SLA. And then, of course, uh, her lawyers hire a bodyguard for her when she's out on bail, an off-duty cop um, named Bernie Shaw, and they, they fall in love and they have a long and successful marriage. So she had a thing for sort of authority figures and she adapted to her surroundings with them. And I, that, that's sort of the best way I can characterize uh, at least her relationship with men. Legal expert Jeffrey Tubin. Another smart kid who turned into a journalistic superstar is George Stephanopoulos. But when he left the White House, where he was domestic policy advisor to President Clinton, he wasn't sure where he'd land. I knew I didn't want to be someone who just hung around Washington, trading off of what he had done forever. And I knew that in order to feel my age again, I had to start a different career. The rest of that interview is at heresthething.org. Coming up, Tubin and I go deep on OJ. Hi, I'm Alec Baldwin. Don't you think it's cool to care? Carrie Yuma knows fast fashion's not sustainable and decided to spin that conscious mindset to create high-quality, low-impact sneakers. Their best-selling Akka style is the perfect, durable sneaker for dressing up or down, pairing a fresh look with broken-in level comfort. Akka is made with organic cotton canvas and ethically sourced rubber, and every pair comes with Karayuma's signature cork and Mamona oil insoles. Akka's already found its way into my summer shoe rotation. Find your pair and choose from a range of bold and beautiful colors. Right now, there's 15% off at C-A-R-I-U-M-A 
com slash alec with how much we rely on our devices it's easy to forget about the hardware we're born with take ears like fingerprints your ears are totally unique too bad your earbuds aren't unless you've got ultimate ears fits true wireless custom fit earbuds ultimate ears fits offer premium sound and all-day comfort their groundbreaking life form technology guarantees a perfect fit in only 60 seconds. Just put in the earbuds, connect to the app, and watch as the purple LEDs form the earbuds to your unique shape. With 8 hours of continuous playback on a single charge and up to 20 hours with the charging case, Ultimate Ears Fits are the perfect choice for listening to your favorite music and podcast all day long without pain or discomfort. For a limited time, get 15% off above the current offer of your pair of Ultimate Ears Fits True Wireless Earbuds at ue.com slash fits. Just use promo code FITS at checkout. That's 15% off the current offer with promo code FITS at ue.com slash fits. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. New Yorker writer and CNN legal analyst Jeffrey Tubin wrote the definitive book on O.J. The thing about O.J. that was so rich and that was so complicated was that Johnny Cochran, who, again, a, a complicated person, but someone basically I just loved, understood the context of the story and understood what it meant to blame white cops in Los Angeles and how there were so many justifiable reasons to be for black people to be pissed at the at the LAPD and he took that history and put it to use in favor of the least deserving person in America right, right. and and so you had this crazy juxtaposition of Cochran pointing out all these injustices and and then you know like manna from heaven mark Furman appears who is the personification of all that's wrong with the LAPD and he puts it to work for the benefit of of OJ Simpson who is basically just a wealthy wife beater that's all he is this was a domestic violence homicide happens all the time in the united states he's a spoiled brat he, he was he was spoiled you know i mean when he was at galileo high school in san francisco he was a football prodigy. He goes to USC, superstar at, at USC. Wins the big game. First, you know, Heisman Trophy winner, first pick in the draft. And, and, and you know, he led this gilded life, insulated, not just from the, uh, the, the broader African-American struggle. His, his thing was enviable yeah, in the it, white world. Yes. The perfect setup for someone who, who had this sense of entitlement. Um, that led him to have expectations about his wife that when they were not met, he beat the hell out of her. What do you think happened? I mean, I, mean, I, I hate to ask you specifics like this. Like, I mean, the, the, you watch the program, you, you know, the one based on your book. Uh, you know, you watch this program and five episodes go by, seven and a half hours, and you're still stopping you, and, and I want to get you in a room and I want to go, do you still think O.J. did it? Did oh, it, my did it? God. Right. So all the, all the DNA evidence, the DNA evidence is it. That's it. Well, it's not just the DNA evidence. I mean, it, you know, there are Was size, the glove planted? The glove wasn't planted. You're convinced Okay. There are one set of bloody footprints walking away from the crime scene. Right. They are size 11 Bruno, Bruno Mali shoes right. that O.J. owned. I mean, what That's more it. do you need right. to know? Right. And again, you know, people talk about this case as if, you know, he— 
it's inexplicable. Why would he do this? He was a domestic violence perpetrator. This is how how these stories escalate. This was not a random crime. This was a domestic violence homicide. And and that, I think, I mean, you know, the the whole Me Too movement, I think, you know, has illuminated just how pervasive, I mean, obviously, that's a somewhat separate subject, but it just shows, you know, how people could discount the domestic violence aspect of the story when it's the core of the story. I mean, it's why this murder took place and poor Ronald Goldman sort of stumbled on the scene. You know, one of the dirty little secrets of of particularly homicide investigations is that in the vast, vast majority of the time, it's completely obvious who the perpetrator is. I mean, you know, a a lot of uh, homicides are what people call disputes. You know, I did a story in Milwaukee uh, about the prosecutor's office there, and it said, you know, 80% of the crime victims, of, of the murder victims in um, Milwaukee have criminal records. They're disputes between criminals. And, and it's like, it's pretty easy to tell, you know, who killed whom and why. When you have cases where you have an aggressive defense, where you have cases where people are going to challenge the evidence, the cops aren't used to that. And, um, you know, when you had a genius like Barry Sheck challenging the DNA evidence and and talking about the possibility of planning, it was— Putting the blanket over the bodies. Yeah, I mean, it was just— stuff. Who's the Asian guy that's the— Dennis Fung. Poor Dennis Fung, who was just a criminalist. I mean, you know, who who was just, you know, supposed to be collecting the evidence. And, you know, because most most cases end in guilty pleas, that sort of—and the vast majority of cases don't have lawyers the caliber of Barry Sheck, none of that behavior is ever challenged. But it was, and there you see. Did she do everything she could have done to protect herself, or did she really, really do what a lot I mean, of women she, do, and they just knuckle under and hope things get better? Well, I, no, I mean, she left. She divorced him. Right. She called the police eight times right. at least. I mean, you know, th- this. she did more than a lot of women right. do under, under these circumstances. And also, remember, you know, when she called the police— she knew that the police socialized with O.J., that they went and that they were as starstruck as anybody else by O.J. So where was she supposed to turn if the police were right. essentially on O.J.'s side? So I have a lot of sympathy for Nicole on that front. Do you think of that A-team of Cochran and Sheck and Shapiro uh, and uh, Bailey, did any of them voice any serious regrets about the outcome of the trial? I mean, Shapiro— kind of boycotting the festivities afterward and kind of uh, uh, backtracking on certain things, the race card. And right. I actually have a lot of contempt for how Robert Shapiro handled the whole thing because Shapiro wanted everything both ways. He wanted to be a good lawyer for his client, but he wanted his pals in West L.A. to still like him. And they all they all saw how bad, you know, how poisonous the trial had become. So he wanted to help O.J., but he wanted to dissociate himself with the defense. I think that's crap. I think he, he shouldn't have done that. Uh, F. Lee Bailey, because he's a nut, thinks O.J.'s innocent, like has a whole crazy theory about how O.J.'s innocent. That's what he tells himself. I, I don't know. I know. I think he actually believes it. I mean, I, he um, – Johnny and – Johnny was like, I did my job. I blame the cops. I always blame the cops in my right. case. And you know Come what? And they take deserve it. Come and perfectly take it. happy with the result. Barry Sheck believes with all his heart that the evidence was planted. What he ultimately thinks about O.J.'s guilt or innocence, I'm not sure. Will we? we you know, I, I, I mean, I know and love Barry Sheck. 
I haven't gone there with him. But he believed with all his heart that the evidence was planted, and he thought that alone justified an acquittal. I didn't right. think the evidence was planted. I didn't think there was a justified acquittal. So there were different attitudes on the part of the defense team. When you look back on uh, Clark and Darden uh, uh, in retrospect, I'm, I'm wondering, there's a real distance from all this, uh, um, you know, develop your perspective at all or people's perspectives about it. Do you look back and think beyond, is Furman the, the, the pivotal moment? I, I think they for, blow the case when they put him on the stand? Well, I mean, it's not so much they blow the case when they put him on the stand because the defense would have put him on the stand. I mean, the, the, Furman was the cancer at the heart of the case and they couldn't not they, they they couldn't read him out read him out of the case because you know he did discover the glove at OJ's residence. I mean it was not he, he you, they couldn't pretend that he had no role in the case. You know when you look at you know a four month trial where the jury deliberates for half a day. <laughs> it, it, there was no one turning point. I mean obviously Chris Darden shouldn't have told him to put on the glove, but the case was lost in a million ways and it was probably lost in jury selection. So, I mean, one, one of the things I like about going back to stories that, um, you know, are 20 years old mm-hmm. or even 40 years old like Patty Hearst is that people have sort of a tragic sense about them. And I, don't, I mean tragic in the Greek sense of it was all preordained. We think we can control events, but events control us. You know, we're so engaged in being angry at the time and why didn't you do this? Why didn't you do that? When you go back 20 years or 40 years, people are, I think, more philosophical about the, about, about these subjects. At least I am. And, and I, I enjoy that kind, of, that kind of work. Do you have more editorial freedom, would you say, writing books or at The New Yorker? Books. Books. Um, the, the Describe New, the difference. The, well, The New Yorker is, and it's one of the reasons I love it, but it is a very intensively edited magazine. I mean, you know, starting with David Remnick, but also the senior editors who, who you know, deal with you day to day. I mean, they are uh, – They are tough and fastidious and they tell you to go rewrite and they tell you to do more reporting. And um, there is a um, – and I mean this in a good way, but there is – a formula of sorts. I mean, there is a rigor that is imposed on New Yorker stories that at least I feel kind of constrains my voice. And and, and New Yorker story, you know, New Yorker stories, you know, often have a point of view, but mostly they are uh, laying out facts. I feel like when I write a book, when I go to the trouble of writing a book, I owe it to the reader sort of laying out where I stand. And like, for example, I wrote a number of pieces about O.J. Simpson in The New Yorker at the time, but I never said, you know, do I think he's guilty? Because that, that just wouldn't have fit within the true ambit of a New Yorker story. In my book, I think I said it on the third page that, you know, he's absolutely positively guilty. And, and, and I think, you know, when I wrote a book about impeachment, I, I said I thought the impeachment of Bill Clinton was a disgrace. Uh, you know, I've t- written two books in the Supreme Court, which have less clear po- – there's not sort of guilty, innocent dialectic in them. They are, you know, more broadly narrative. But I feel a greater freedom to give my opinion in a book than I do in a New Yorker story. What would you say for people who aren't that familiar with – to go to Clinton now, to jump to Clinton now, because all these stories have something in common where someone does something and some big uh, big-ticket litigation ensues, right. and that litigation is complicated by the fact that the person is no altar boy. They've done, O.J. killed his wife, but as juror number 10 says, we're going to 
we're going to settle the score for Rodney right, King. Right. I want to say this carefully. I mean, I know Clinton. I'm friends with Clinton, however friendly you can be with the former president of the United States. Uh-huh. Uh, and yet, you know, you wonder, beyond his libido and his appetites and things that got him in trouble, the people that wanted to bring him down politically, they hated him for what? Well, you know, it, it's funny. I think it returns to what we were talking about earlier the 60s and 70s. I think they thought Bill Clinton was the embodiment of the changes in society from the 60s and 70s that these people didn't like. Sexual liberation, less uh, scrupulous morality, the rise of women. I think, you know, the the hatred of Hillary Clinton, which, of course, we saw come to fruition in 2016, right. you know, that was a big part of why they hated Clinton in 1998, too. The famous moment where she says, well, I could just stay at home and bake cookies. Um, they hated Clinton yeah. for that. Yeah. They hated Hillary. They hated Bill. And, and I think... The, the the hostility to Clinton that, that that led to impeachment was much less based in any sort of policy matter. I mean, Clinton's policies were hardly very radical. Right. It was that Clinton was the embodiment of sort of the, the worst side of the baby boom in their view. That, that the self-indulgent, uh, morally— Pacifistic. Pa- pa- right. You know, dodge the draft. Most of his critics dodged the draft, too. Right, but right. that's okay. Um, all of that, I think, was why they hated Clinton much more than any sort of, you know, policy. Specific th- policy. Yeah. I knew everything that was wrong with Hillary Clinton, or I was familiar with the complaints about Hillary Clinton and where there was some strand of validity to that. But, uh, you know, I—, I and when I look back on it now, it's like the slow motion. It's like the Titanic hitting the iceberg. It never occurred to me <laughs> that Donald Trump could become president of the United States. Yeah. And he has been exactly what his critics claimed he would be as president. I mean, you know, I, I the, the thing that, that really just – I can't get over about the Trump presidency. It's not so much that he's conservative politically and he puts someone very conservative on the Supreme Court, uh, even though who knows what his actual politics really are. I mean, the idea that Donald Trump is like somehow opposed to abortion is kind of comical, right? Uh, but but I mean, he has he has made his political alliance with the most conservative part of the, uh, the Republican Party. And, and the thing that just kills me every time he does it is when he tweets or says, you know, why isn't Hillary Clinton being prosecuted? Why why aren't the FBI agents being prosecuted? The idea that you can call for the imprisonment of your political rivals mm-hmm. is precisely what happens in authoritarian mm-hmm. countries. And his obvious affection for authoritarians like Putin, like Erdogan in Turkey. I mean, this is something I never thought would happen in the United States. I knew we'd have conservative presidents. George W. Bush was was conservative and I, you know, I thought the Iraq war was a Disaster. I thought mm-hmm. the economy collapsed under him. But, I mean, these were sort of within the normal range mm-hmm. of American politics. The casual racism, the, the bigotry, you know, it's like Maxine Waters, the African-American congressman mm-hmm. from, congresswoman from, from Los Angeles. And he's, he says, you know, you know she's, very, she's very low IQ. She's very low IQ. I mean, the idea that the president of the United States talks that way, right. how do we deal with that going forward? You know, do we, you know, the, the line we, you know, normalize it. I mean, when do we stop pointing out the racism, the ignorance, mm-hmm. the, the intolerance? 
of the authoritarian tendencies. And I don't know. I mean, I really don't know. And some people think, well, you should just ignore the tweets. You can ignore the tweets. I mean, it's, it, he, he's completely guilt, guiltless either way. Uh, do you think we're going to see something from Mueller soon? You know, the, the, the crucial question that of the Mueller investigation, which has not been which, – which I don't know the answer to, is look, we now know there was this enormously elaborate Russian effort to get Donald Trump elected president. There was this extreme solicitude for Russia reflected throughout the Trump campaign and his campaign chairman um, – for a while, Paul Manafort was like literally in hock to Vladimir Putin's allies. What we have not seen clearly is the the joining of those two, the the collusion, as it were. I mean, there there are examples. There's the meeting in June of uh, in, in 2016 in Trump Tower. There is Roger Stone talking about WikiLeaks uh, in advance of, of those releases. But but the the clear proof of Trump's involvement with Russia's uh, or the, Russia's effort to help him has not yet been made, and and that's what I'm waiting to see whether Mueller can do. Is this your next book? Yes, it the, is the Miss Universe connection. Uh, yeah, yes, it is. Well, it your is. piece is in the New Yorker now. Yeah, yes, I, I I'm going to do a book about this investigation. This is your next and, piece. And, and 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 you know I'm not in a hurry. I, this is not going to be over very soon, and you know. Not least because no one from Mueller's office will talk to me while this is going on. Right. I'm going to just wait. And uh, it's going to go through most of 2018. Is that going to be a movie too? I, it looks like we're going to sell the rights. We'll sell say, the as rights. you well know, just selling the rights doesn't mean that it's going to be a movie, but – Looks like we're going to sell it. Right. Right. What, what you're going to need is a really good Trump impersonator to play Trump. I don't Trump. know. God, who knows where I can, can find I one something? of those? It's not me. It's not me. <laughs> I'm the worst Trump impersonator, apparently, that's out there. <laughs> that's It's incredible. Incredible. Well, so you'd say that the, the through line, if, if, if there is a through line in all your books, what is it? It's it's the law. The drama, the stakes, the the importance of legal disputes and their resolution we were saying, uh, my producers and I, before we started with you, you're like the Steven Spielberg of legal uh, books. I, I am exactly like Steven Spielberg, yeah. except Big if you take off themes. Sev several zeros yeah. off well, the end of the, of the— You, you <laughs> and everybody else yeah, have right. less zeros than Spielberg. <laughs> but, 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 but there are big, sprawling themes, Clinton, O.J., yeah, Patty big Hearst, big, big stories. stories. David Remnick, the editor of The New Yorker, uh, when, he, when, he's, when he's talking about story ideas, he always says, bring me big, dumb ideas. Like, bring me, like, what people really want to know about. Like, and I remember I, I was kicking around story ideas with him once. He says, well, what about the chief justice of the United States? So, I mean, I think given how much this story has led our politics, has, you know, transfixed the country, has really called into question the legitimacy of this entire presidential election, why shouldn't I write a book about it? I mean, I, I really do think of myself fundamentally as a legal journalist. I mean, you asked me earlier, did I think Donald Trump was going to win? You know, I know people like Ron Brownstein who are brilliant at analyzing polls and analyzing, you know, trends in politics. That's not me. But what is the Supreme Court going to do on an issue? That I'm, that I'm good at and that I understand and that I care about. Um, what, how will a jury react to certain evidence? That interests me. That I feel like I'm is, is in my bailiwick. So I, I just, you know, I'm, 
uh, it's sort of like anchoring on television and news. You know, people have always asked me, you know, not always. No one gives, no one really cares that much whether I'm an anchor or not. But, you know, do I want to anchor? I really don't want to anchor. Yeah, no, don't do that. And, and it's like not, <laughs> it's it's just not something We're I. counting on you not doing No, that. I'm not. And also they all get fired for the most part. Right. Um, it's a waste of your talent. No. It's, and so, you know, I, I, I feel like I have found my niches in, in, uh, providing content, and I'm happy with them. I don't need more. One of the things that's emerged from the issues that have, uh, about the election was uh, reflecting back on Obama and what Obama didn't do. When you look back on Obama through this prism of almost you know a year and a half at least of, of Trump, has your opinion of him changed at all? Not really. Um, you know, uh, speaking of books, you could write a whole book Exploring the decisions made under the 2000s, in the 2016 election that were based on the assumption Hillary was going to win anyway. So much of people's behavior was based on the idea that she was going to in, in, win anyway. Obama didn't raise as big a stink as he might have about the Russians, which he knew about. Mm -hmm. Because he thought she was going to win anyway, mm -hmm. and the Republicans were not going to help him raise this alarm. You know, Jim, Jim Comey thought she was going to win anyway, so she, so he blew up the you know he he put that stuff out there a week before the election. They didn't think it mattered. D didn't think it mattered, and how wrong they all were. A sobering thought from legal writer and analyst Jeffrey Tubin who is as eager to write as I am to read the last chapter of his upcoming book on the Trump presidency. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. had an earache on a Saturday of all days. So her mom brought her to Minute Clinic at CVS, where you can see a provider, fill a prescription, and grab essentials like pain relief products, all in one visit. Even on evenings and weekends, you can even see us online with telehealth options. For quality, affordable care on your schedule, visit Minute Clinic at CVS. That's healthier, made easier. Services vary by location. See MinuteClinic.com for details. Change is this ever-present force shaping our lives. But how does it really work? I'm Dr. Maya Shunker, and that's the question I'm trying to answer in my new podcast from Pushkin Industries, A Slight Change of Plans. I'll be having revealing conversations with a bunch of folks. Some names you'll recognize and others not. But all of them have lived through extraordinary change. I hope you'll come away thinking differently about change in your own life. Listen to A Slight Change of Plans on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.